it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 627 for February 25th, 2020. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Robin Christofferson. This is Robin's first time on the show. So let me tell you just a little bit about him. Robin is the host of the Alexa Skills podcast called Dot to Dot. And he's co-host of the weekly Tech Talk show. Robin is also head of digital inclusion and part of the uh, accessibility and tech team of AbilityNet and has spoken at numerous events in recent years. And by the way, also happens to be blind. How are you doing today, Robin? I am doing really well. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, yeah. Now, I, I've been, I'm going to kid Robin right up front is I have never asked anybody on the show who asked me, could they be on the show? But Robin sent over the information on what he has worked on, what he has done. And I heard his voice. I heard his content. He was silly, uh, but also <laughs> very well informed. And I figured that's exactly what we're looking for on Chit Chat Across the Pond. So uh, he did He did beg and, and you know, all that. But uh, I, I think it'll be fun, right? <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, maybe. We'll find out. Well, okay. So you've worked, uh, you're from the UK. I can tell by your accent, right? Mm -hmm. Across the pond. <laughs> there you go. See, it's official. And uh, so you've worked for this uh, disability charity, AbilityNet, for, you said, 25 years. What is AbilityNet and what do they do? So yeah, we're um UK tech and disability charity, which is all things disability. So you might have heard of the RNIB, the Royal National Institute for the Blind, and various other organisations that are focusing on a particular disability or a particular minority. Well, it really helps to have one that is pan-disability because, you know, you don't kind of, for me as being blind, for example, you know, I haven't necessarily had all of my disability allocation yet. Something else <laughs> might come along, um, probably hearing as, you know, I get even older. Um, so pan-disability, there's so much tech out there, you know, in the, the couple of decades that I've been working in this field, it's been breathtaking or eye-opening, should I say, um, how far and fast things have changed. And technology is such an empowering thing. And for people with disabilities, you know, when the PC came along back in the 80s, which luckily coincided with my uh, higher education. Uh, so I had a talking laptop. It was the size of a small suitcase and it sounded like a robot and it was DOS-based. Oh, nice. um, but uh, it got me through my education. And um because the PC is so versatile, you know, you can um, have a different way of operating it. You know, if you can't use the keyboard or you can't see the keys, then you can learn to touch type or you can get a different keyboard or you can use voice recognition. If you can't see the mouse on the screen, you can make the arrow bigger. You can change the colors, the text size, get a different kind of mouse, a joystick that you might already know how to use in operating your wheelchair, for example. There's so many things, you know, as a blind person, I use speech output and all of that redundancy, you know, the technical term, um, all of those choices means that it's a gift for people with disabilities. And I can't overestimate how much the lives of disabled people changed with the advent of the PC back in the 80s. And ever since then, you know, 10 years ago or a little bit more, the smartphone came along and then you've got all the power of that PC with you wherever you are in a much more portable form. But you've also got all of these sensors, camera, accelerometer, GPS, etc., that you can utilize as well. And uh, we could maybe talk later about the kind of the next stage of computing, which I'm really into with the dot to dot podcast, which is the what some people call the age of ambient computing, where you just talk to the air. <laughs> and it comes back with useful information or services or whatever. Well, yeah, it, it feels like technology is leveling the playing field. Would that be a good way to describe it? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you can't do things in a, a standard way, so yeah, as a blind person, you know, I can't see to read. So I would uh, type rather than handwrite. I would have it spoken back to me or on a Braille display rather than being able to see to read off the screen or whatever. Um but for other people, there's just so many choices and you're right, it levels the playing field. There are some caveats to that about whether the technology that you're using is accessible or whether the content that you're accessing is done in an accessible way. But broadly speaking, tech is a massive empowerer. And I just feel so lucky to have been working in this field for so long um, and just seeing all of these changes, all of these developments. It's been brilliant. 
let me ask you a question as, uh, and of course do speak for every person on the planet with a disability <laughs> when you answer, um, do you guys resent it when people without disabilities go, Hey, this thing's cool. I could use it to do this. You know, this will work for me too. Absolutely not. I mean, okay. people can, um, hijack or kind of utilize specialist tech and vice versa. And all of the main ad advancements that have been happening in recent years, um, that as a blind person, for example, you know, I'm using machine learning to recognize objects with apps on my phone, um, mm. isn't there for, wasn't designed or developed for disabled people. You know, it was, um, more broadly for people who want to, or Google who wants to make uh, images and video content indexable, searchable <laughs> on the internet and that sort of thing. So there's this gorgeous overlap, this um, mixing of the two. And the, the specialist tech that I used to have to use has definitely become more and more mainstream as mainstream tech is um, developing in ways that are going to be more and more useful for people with a vision impairment or whatever your disability is. So, yeah, I mean... Before, the adaptations were really quite straightforward. You know, maybe if you couldn't see the keys, you'd put high-vis keyboard stickers on a standard keyboard and you'd make your text slightly bigger. And there were lots of things that you could do. Um, but now it's almost like the sky's the limit with what changes can be made. And many of those are built in already. You know, Apple has been the champion of inclusive design and everything that they've done, they've done properly. They've done thoroughly, you know, they've painted the back of the fence like uh, <laughs> Steve Jobs did when he was a child, even they got told off for it. Um, so we're all benefiting from that because Apple have led the way and everybody wants to be like Apple and they've got all of the, um, the, the compliance that they need to get the big uh, contracts for, you know, supplying to the federal government or the education sector in America, for example, you know, there's really good reasons to make things accessible and inclusive on both sides, you know, the carrots and the sticks. But, um, yeah. You know, uh, two things come to mind in what you were just saying there. Uh, backing up to when you were talking about specialty tech, the other thing is that the specialty stuff ends up really expensive because that special thing that you need is different from the special thing that I need. And so yeah. the, the market gets smaller and smaller and smaller as it becomes more specialized. But if you can just build it in with a setting on a phone, all of a sudden that doesn't, that isn't crazy expensive like it used to be. I mean, even, even Braille displays, I mean, those things are stupid expensive. They're crazy. Yeah. Until really very recently when a new tranche have come out that have been relative, you know, hundreds of dollars rather than Instead thousands. Of thousands. Yeah. So we're or going, even tens of thousands. Steve and I are going to the uh, CSUN per, uh, Accessibility mm -hmm. Tech Conference in March, and I, I'll be real curious to see that because I've seen people proposing, like, we think we could do this. You know, we're hoping in a few years to be able to make this less expensive. But I, I hadn't seen any significant movement uh, even last year. You know, more experimental models, but it seemed like the the machinery of, you know, the tolerances to have those little pins go up and yep. down was so expensive that they just stayed expensive. So if, yeah. if you're saying they've dropped, that's good to know. I'll, I'll keep my eye out they for They being two models, there's the Orbit 20 and the um, Braille Me, which is, I think, a 14 cell. And they're around the $500 mark. But still, um, $500, that's a oh, lot absolutely. of money. Well, absolutely. Especially in, a, in a, a demographic that is highly unemployed. <laughs> no, no blind person I think would be paying for their own braille display. So it would be oh, out really? of the reach of someone that wasn't in work. And that's a real shame. So in the UK, for example, I know the stat for people with a vision impairment, and that's across the whole spectrum, not just people who are fully blind, 73% are out of work, even though the technology is there to level the playing field, like you said. So it's, it's criminal. It really yeah, is yeah. that they've got so much to offer. They've done degree after degree because they haven't got any other options and they're hoping that it will make them more and more employable. Um, mm. And yet, you know, they haven't had the break. So yeah. they wouldn't have the disposable income to to even get a Braille display that would augment their daily life with being able to read rather than just listen. The uh, Hopefully there's people listening who are in a position to employ people who would uh, hear what I'm about to say. I worked for a company that 
uh, really embrace diversity. And at first, I, they made me be on the diversity council, and I didn't want to be on it. And then they made me lead the diversity council, and I didn't want to lead it. And they said I had to lead it for two years, and I ended up leading it for five. But what what I what I realized over time was that my company didn't embrace diversity because of it was nice to do. You know, it's really good to give these people of the minority community a job and we should make sure we promote them because it's nice. They did it because it's a competitive advantage that the more diverse the the viewpoints you get, you are going to make better products. It's a fact. And so we, we, when I realized that, that changed my whole outlook on it was I wasn't being nice at all. I was being viciously competitive by saying, okay, if we don't have all the voices, then we don't have as good of an opinion as we can. We can form better decisions and build better products if we have all these diverse opinions, whether it's from race, creed, gender, sexual orientation, or disability. Absolutely. Totally agree. And, you know, we're very lucky that diversity is a kind of a really hot topic. It's the new coolness. <laughs> um, the one thing, though, and this happened on a national interview with the um, Minister for Employment here in the UK. He was talking about the importance of exactly what you were talking about there, how the more diverse the team is who's making a product or um, in a workforce, the, the better the products, the services, um, the well-being, the mental health, all of those things. And he listed race, religion, age, gender, and he forgot disability. <laughs> and that we're always the, the Cinderella. We're always the oh, ones that are kind of, we, well, that and the fact that all these other ones are sexy and it hasn't necessarily extended to disability. There's a brilliant um, campaign that, Caroline Casey. She's an absolute star. If you haven't watched any of her stuff, she's the founder of the Valuable 500, which is an organization that from Davos last year to the one just gone set themselves a target of trying to get 500 CEOs of global companies to sign a kind of a charter to say that they will have disability on the agenda for every board meeting. And oh. because it's oh. just the forgotten minority and when we are being left behind in the party of diversity and they um, created a number of, of videos with hashtag diverseish so if you look on youtube and by all means put a link in the show notes or even insert the audio of one of the videos here because they are she wants as much exposure as possible they are excruciatingly funny and painful simultaneously <laughs> because it's basically um spoof interviews with a number of different companies and each one of them are saying well um disability isn't our priority yet because you know this this year it's bame and uh next year it's uh, ice caps and the year after that it's and they're kind of going up to like what 2027 you know <laughs> when are you gonna so um hashtag diverseish guys everybody go and google that on and these youtube videos um there's several of them are absolutely gold you have to have a look but you'll come away thinking yikes disability <laughs> really is left behind on the in the party of uh the new hotness which is diversity but you're yeah. absolutely right and when it comes back to tech there have been some very noticeable or notable um painful uh, issues where the teams in California or wherever it is, you know, young white men haven't been diverse enough to make sure that that machine learning recognizes people of color oh, and yeah. not call them something very yeah. un. I'm yeah. so I'm so glad they made that catastrophic error. Um, yeah, basically, I, I'll go ahead and say it because you appear to be too polite, <laughs> but uh, basically, Google's uh, image search. Uh, was recognizing pictures of African American men and saying they were apes, and it yeah. was it was it was horrible. But it's but it's perfect because it it is such a a black and white, if you forgive the expression, mm -hmm. explanation of exactly why you need diversity is if you just you don't know what you don't know, right? I don't know what it's like to be blind, so I can't possibly look at at have a life view that includes that. I mean, I try to because I'm talking to you, but I don't talk to a lot of people who are deaf, you know, so there's a huge blind spot there. I don't talk to a lot. I mean, I have a few friends in in wheelchairs. So, you know, I mean, I'm trying to be woke and all that, but I can't know because I'm not living it. So, if you don't have that diverse workforce, 
uh, you know, people of color, gender and disability, you know, you don't know. The other thing that I, I noticed in my company, even though we're, you know, we were all progressive and all this on the, this kind of thing, was that I'd meet people with a disability who were afraid to ask for assistive devices. And I remember just beating this guy up one time because he was afraid to ask for, I don't, I don't remember what it was, but it was something that cost like a couple hundred dollars. And he was convinced that if he asked for it, he'd get fired. And I said, not only you get fired, you could sue their brains out if they don't give it to you. What's the matter with you? You know, and he, yeah. and he, he literally didn't know that. Over here, it's, uh, I mentioned that statistic earlier and it's very, very challenging. And for the last five years at AbilityNet, we've been working on a, what we call a cloud profiling, diversity profiling solution called Clear Talents. And it's trying to get this uh, kind of catch-22 to deal with this problem because in recruitment, they know that they need to uh, offer the job or consider applicants on their merits, on their qualifications, etc., and that it's a legal requirement to make reasonable adjustments. They're called reasonable yeah. accommodations over where you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but at the same time, when you've got 280 candidates for the same vacancy, it's so tempting to just filter out put them over to one side because they've got all of these people over here that haven't got a disability and it's driven by problems. Yeah. It's driven by fear. The fear is that they'll do the wrong thing. They'll end up getting sued. And that goes with employers as well. Um, It's, it's a catch 22. So the system that we've got isn't just about disability. It's about diversity. So it covers all of the nine protected characteristics, age, gender, race, religion, um, sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera, disability. <laughs> um, and you're, it you're, asks, you're, the, you're the all and all the rest. On, yeah, uh, on we're, we're the last one. And you want to be remember. called uh, the professor and Marianne. You don't want to be in all the rest, right? <laughs> so this tool that we've got, because it doesn't just focus on one of those protected characteristics, as it's called, the ones that are legally covered um, to protect against discrimination, um, it's then perfectly sensible for it to be mandated or at least strongly encouraged as step three out of four, for example, in the application process, because everyone's got something to say. And it also includes dietary requirements and caring responsibilities, etc. So what you find is that two thirds of the people that fill it out have some very valid grounds for reasonable adjustment. And they just feel really supported because it just asks all the right questions. And what the recruiter and there's a, an in-work version as well, or, and then the line manager will get this, they get reports that just tell them what they have to do. And then the fear goes away because oh, they like know what I, they need to if do. If I know what the rules are, then I don't have to be afraid. That's, that's probably the smartest thing I've heard. That's a great idea. And it all kicked off because five years ago, a not-for-profit organization here in the UK did some desk research and they applied for 20 vacancies with CVs and covering letters of fictional people but that in every case qualified, you know, ticked all the boxes for that particular vacancy, that post. And they didn't say that they had a disability or, you know, fill out the bit of the application that said, have you got any particular requirements? And then they said they applied for the same 20 vacancies with, in effect, the same 20 oh, candidates, no. but they changed enough of the kind of um, top level information that it didn't, it wasn't obvious that they were the same people, but they were in effect the same candidates in those two sets. In the first case, they got 20 replies. Thank you for your application, blah, blah, blah. In the second, zero. Oh, wow. So the form, the tick box, which says I've got a disability or the, the box where they could put in some free form information about particular needs they have. And that was there because of the legislation so that the recruiters could then accommodate their needs that they flagged was actually uh, being used as a, a tool for discrimination. So that was wow. the challenge that we had. And what we actually built into the recruitment version of this system was um, an audit trail. So the recruiters could only see if anyone had disclosed anything across any of those areas of need after they'd unlocked the section which says, I have received this candidate's application or I oh, am oh, about oh. to. So they were um, simply pretending they didn't get it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, not and that they were rejecting. They were simply going, oh, I'm just not even going to look at just that Just ignoring. One. Oh, wow. And so say you were in a wheelchair, for example, there's no accommodations that you need 
in the first half of the application, you know, six stages, application, shortlisting, interview, assessment, onboarding, and et cetera. The, there's no implications at all for being in a wheelchair until you come into a venue. So in the first stages of the report that they unlocked, it said no need, you know, no adjustments needed, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. And then when they unlock the one that says, I am inviting this candidate in for interview, well, they suddenly we'll say, say Make sure there's a ramp. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Oh, this person's in a wheelchair. I had no idea. But by that time, it's far too late. But don't worry, because you've given you've been given the adjustments that you need right down to what the millimeters of the ramp rail should be and what the dimensions of the accessible toilet that would need to be at the venue, etc. And it even includes things like if you're a Muslim lady and you need to come in for an interview um, and there's a man present, you need to have another lady present, stuff like that. It's so broad. And yeah, we're just, I mean, it's being used by loads of organizations over here and it would need to be tailored if it was going to be um, used in the States. But, you know, that's certainly something that we might want to look at later on because every organization should be using this and the diversity just goes, well, the disclosure rate goes way up. The number of, um, the amount of sickness within organizations goes way down. The amount spent on compromise agreements and tribunals goes way hmm. down to zero in most cases. So there's massive. Um, now, you still don't let women apply, right? You make <laughs> yeah. You save that right up front, right? <laughs> it would um, be a gift for anyone that was a perfect storm. So, you know, if you were a black, female, disabled, lesbian, it would be an absolute um, perfect tool to make sure that you are considered on your merits. Right. Although um, the only bit that wasn't sexy in that would be the disability, unfortunately. <laughs> Everything else is sexy. <laughs> You have a twisted view. By the way, when, when uh, Robin set out the uh, helped me set up the agenda for this, uh, he ended. I told him that he had a little more content that we could probably cover. We're done with point one, Robin, and we've been talking yep. for twenty minutes. So I told you we would have fun. <laughs> well, I, I want to talk a little bit. Uh, let's get a little more specific about you. Um, so, tell us about the blind tech that you use. So, I mean. I was lucky enough to not always be blind. I haven't been blind from birth. My condition is gradual. So to that extent, it's just really easy to adapt as you gradually lose all your vision. And I grew up in a- you don't have a, to learn it all at once or? Well, just imagine waking up one morning and not having anything. So, oh, you know, okay. that would be, and obviously that does happen yeah. to many people. But um, yeah, so that- you always knew it was going to happen. My mum had the same condition. My other two sisters have got the same condition. My dad is blind for a completely other reason. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, the whole family. You come um, by it honestly then. <laughs> so that, but I mean, it was just super normal, although there are lots of um, interesting things in a completely blind family. Um, just something as simple and try this at your next. None of your clothes match. Sorry. Well, <laughs> I, who, I mean, who cares? To be honest. <laughs> Although I've got a wife that dresses me now. So, um, but yeah, I mean, try this next time you have the chance to, um, with a, your partner or, or a friend or something, both close your eyes and try one of you to hand something to the other. Oh. Something as simple as that. You're both uh -huh. waving your hands around like idiots trying to, and your hand never coincides. You know, it's like There's you end up grabbing their elbow space. and working your way back to the, yeah, too much free space to um, navigate in. So, yeah, that just try something as simple as that. But, yeah, I mean, we had so many um, challenges around. I mean, mum's cooking is fantastic, but all her dishes are one pot dishes, like yeah. casseroles and things, because that's just how you, it's a really good way of cooking if you can't see. You the limit but, the I variables. Mean, well, so, for example... We've had some really interesting dishes like um, frozen peas and frozen blueberries feel the same <laughs> in the freezer. So that, you know, a stew with blueberries in and that sort of thing. And there was one time she would she took the lid off this pot of stew and started to dish it out. And this kind of strip of really thin plastic came out and it just kept coming. Oh, no. And it was basically a whole roll of sellotape. What would you call that? Scotch tape, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and having been boiled for, or you know, on that heat for several hours, all the glue had gone. So Which this means was basically all the glue like was in the two, stew too, right? Well, that, but that, who cares about that? I mean, you know, 
<laughs> on the grand scale of things, that's nothing. But yeah, we had those like 200 meters of plastic strip coming out of this <laughs> pot of stew. So um, I- I'm sure she's like glad that. you're telling that story. Oh, she's uh, she would say that, you know, life's, well, unfortunately, my sister has also got MS as well as um, being blind. So mum's the full time carer because my dad's passed away. So she, you know, on the grand scale of things, you've, if you don't laugh, if you don't kind of um, have a bit of humor over life, then you just, you know, you you couldn't carry on, I don't think. But yeah, so my mom's line was always we have to laugh because we're too old to cry. Yeah. That's right. And, By the way, you know, we have at least two listeners uh, of the show with MS, po- possibly more. So if you have any, any thoughts on tech and MS, that's interesting as well. Absolutely. And this comes back to what we were talking about earlier about the mainstreaming of tech. So you're absolutely right. The tech that I had when I was growing up was all specialist and it was very expensive and it wasn't necessarily the latest gen or cutting edge tech. You know, So I had a talking note taker. Um, which was like just like a keyboard with a built-in speech synthesis in it. Um, and that was like our equivalent of a laptop, don't need the screen. Um, I had a talking MP3 player, which had, you know, talking menus that I could choose the book or the song or playlist that I wanted to hear. I had a talking GPS, the Trekker Breeze. Um, I had a talking barcode scanner for telling you what tins were what, you know, because that's quite important, cat food versus... Uh, baked beans or something. Um, so, and all of those were really expensive. We talked about braille displays, but you know, I, if I had a backpack of equipment, all specialist, all hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of pounds. I mean, there's probably 5,000 pounds worth of like $8,000 worth of equipment in this backpack all had their own chargers that you had to oh. work out which one was for which. And yeah. all of that's gone. So I just have a smartphone now. Well, I have a bunch of other tech as well, but everything in that I've just talked about was is replaced by a phone now. So wow. if anyone says that, you know, iDevices are a little bit pricier than other alternatives, <laughs> um, they are the Rolls-Royce solution when it comes to inclusive design and the disabled community and the visually impaired community in particular, the, the love for Apple devices that is emanating from those groups is palpable and that they are worth every single penny. And of course, there are affordable solutions. And I personally don't need Face ID. I'm more than happy with Touch ID because most of what I'm doing, the phone's, you know, in my pocket when I'm operating it because you, oh, right, you know, you've got right. your, you've got your ears in. So it doesn't matter. You don't, the screen doesn't, you know, feature. So all of those things are now in that device with some mainstream apps, some specialist apps. And my sister had a, uh, environmental control system called the possum, £8,000. So that's what, eleven, twelve thousand dollars $12,000. And all it did was um, it had a big button on it because that's all she could do, She'd just bang her head on a button. And that would speak very slowly down through menus. And the menu might be um, for turning lights on and off, not that she needs to do that because she couldn't see the lights, but they put that in for some reason, um, turning the TV on and off, turning the radio on and off. And the TV one had channels in it, and it was basically emulating a infrared remote control. Um, but to change the channel or to change the volume on her TV would take whole minutes as she listened down through these menus oh. to the to the sub menu item for the TV and the sub menu item for the channel or the volume up and the volume down. So all of that is now replaced by an Echo, a Harmony Home, a Harmony Hub, which is a universal remote control that's programmable and a lady compatible, the Echo compatible. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to say her name because there's one right here. No, we, and I'm, we like a lady. Yeah. In my podcasts, um, you know, I'm demoing a different skill every single day for the Echo and um, I'm just programmed now not to say her name unless I'm actually going to fire up the, the skill that we're going to look at that day. But um, she does it all from the Echo and a million oh, wow. other things that you couldn't use the possum for. And total equipment price, the Echo is what, £30 for a dot? Yeah. The Harmony Hub is, I think, eight, I think it was £80, but they're pro- you can probably get them cheaper now. So, and oh, wow. the whole world is available to her through the Echo and all of these other connected. I mean, I know that you're massive on connected tech, IOT and smart home and that sort of thing. For you, it's, it's brilliant and it's sexy and it's cool. But for people that can't draw that 
Bolt can't draw the blinds, you know, that sort of thing. It's an absolute game changer. So, you know, everyone wins. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Having the door lock and unlock. I know my buddy Frank got one of the- Or the uh, district nurse. Yeah. I, I know my, my buddy Frank uh, got the August lock and it's fantastic that he, he had problems where emergency services came to his house and he couldn't get to the door. But now he can unlock the phone. Or he can unlock the door from his phone and they can get to him if something happens again. Absolutely. So, you know, again, you can't know th- that that's a problem until you're in those shoes, right? That's back. Exactly. To- exactly. So, yeah, I mean, and in the States, you guys, well, the disabled community in the States have a term for the able-bodied community. And it, it's not in use over here, but I'm reliably informed that this is what they, they call them tabs. So people that haven't got a disability are called tabs, which stands for temporarily able-bodied. Oh, wow. Which means that it will get us all in the end. <laughs> yeah. And that's true. You know, we're an aging population. The prevalence of disability is, is on the rise. But luckily, the tech is, you know, rising even faster or becoming smarter at an even higher pace. And, you know, the PC, however brilliant that was and however important it was, it was still a complex bit of kit. And particularly if you couldn't just intuitively wiggle an arrow around the screen and click on things, you know, a screen reader user is going to have to become a bit of a geek to learn the million and a half keystrokes for how to do the things that you would just move and click on. You know, for every single mouse click, there's a different keystroke alternative. It makes you really, really, it makes you a power user because I've done the, I don't know, um, control E for center or F7 for spell check or whatever because my hands are on the keyboard, I've done that in a split second, even before you've half reached for the mouse, let alone, mo- mm. you know, <laughs> grabbed it, moved it, clicked it, put your hands back on the keyboard. So there are some upsides, but it was really complicated. But then when the smartphone came along, um, as well as it being portable and having all these extra, you know, sensors and things, um, it was a much simpler experience for people. And it then made it available to a lot of people that would have been phased by the complexity, particularly if there's a a learning difficulty in there as well, for example, or for the older generation that aren't particularly confident with tech, you know, the the level of discipline that developers and copywriters, UI designers had to impose on themselves when they're now dealing with a much smaller screen, a much simpler UI, benefited everybody and disabled people in particular. And of course, with smart speakers now, you know, there's no UI at all, really. You definitely don't have to worry about what the gestures are or what the, you know, particular way of swiping is or whatever, because it's all based on natural language. So we're definitely moving Except in Except for a, the part where it doesn't work it doesn't most work. of the time. That part, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Early days, early days. And I guess so. I've spent the last week trying to get my lights to turn on when I walk in the room again. They did last week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tech is something that everyone has to grapple with. And there are some brilliant apps where, so we're talking about, you know, AI or probably more, uh, maybe machine learning accurately, machine learning. Yeah. Um, is, is super useful. So as a blind person, I use the camera on my phone, probably more than most people, unless you do take a lot of selfies (laughs) and what I use it for with apps, um, that can do object recognition, text recognition, um, it it just gives me all of that functionality that other people would just, you know, look at something, you know, recognize a person, read some text, but there's only so much that AI can do. And it's going to be a very long time before you can use machine learning within an app. And it will tell you exactly what you need to do when you've got yourself turned around when you're out and about and you, you know, you're a bit lost. Whereas a simple, simple uh, app like Be My Eyes, which I would recommend anyone um, install, whether you're visually impaired or not, because basically what it is, is a big button that you tap on and within seconds it connects someone with a visual impairment with somebody who's got a working pair of eyes. And then you've got a human on the other end who's instantly able to tell you, you know, why is my computer not talking to me? Um, I've tried my machine learning AI on it and it's not, 
you know, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any text on the screen. And they say, well, actually, no, you've just got a spinning beach ball or, you know. So there's so, so many I, times I wanna, when a I human's going to be. This is fascinating that you would bring that up right now. So when Be My Eyes came out, it was it was all the rage. Everybody on Twitter was talking about it, that it was this amazing new feature that people who were sighted would be able to help people with without vision. And I, everybody I knew signed up for it and we never got the call. So I assumed that 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 this whole thing had disappeared. And just this week, uh, listener Margaret, who's also a friend of mine, uh, just happened to write to me and said, hey, have you heard of this app? I was in a meeting with my boss and his phone made a weird ringtone. It was the app Be My Eyes summoning for help. He said he just downloaded it a week ago. It was the first time someone was contacting him for help. So has it ramped up finally or it has, has it, been it has for a long never time? gone away? Okay. I think the perception is that... Um, it had because of its popularity. So there's over a million volunteers now mm-hmm. and only something like 350,000 uh, visually impaired people on there. So oh. the sheer numbers means that, I mean, my wife was so up for this and she wasn't able to get to her phone. She's not the sort of person who has her phone with within inches of her wherever she is. What's and so she'd hear her? that funny tone around the other, you know, from the other end of the house. And by the time she got to it, it would have gone on to the next person in the queue because that's yeah. how it works, isn't it? If you don't get there within a few seconds, it will move on yeah. to the next person because that's, yeah, if it was 30 seconds on each person, then it might be whole minutes before somebody got uh, connected with someone for whom it was convenient at that moment. So she got really frustrated because she so desperately wanted to help. <laughs> but the three or four times that it did ring, she didn't get there in time. But believe me, it, it's the, it's always been the big hotness for okay. visually impaired people. I'm looking and at right now, 3.564583 million volunteers and 197,000 blind. Okay, well, that's yeah. good. Okay, I got those numbers the wrong way around, but yeah. Well, well so, no, you were, I mean, it yeah. orders, an order of magnitude. Orders of magnitude, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And the thing about it is that it, it's expanded as well. So if you have a look at the specialist help, um. The, the the volunteers are always helpful, you know, they're always up for it, but there's times when you you might not want them to be, you know, like a random person to be helping you with something really sensitive. Mm-hmm. So it could be um, a letter from the bank manager, for example. It could even be a pregnancy test result. Right. And whilst you're anonymized, it's something that you might feel you know, uncomfortable about. But yeah, if you tap on that button, you'll see, and I don't know what it's like in the States, but over here, we've got the Microsoft Disability Answer Desk. We've got the Google Accessibility Support Team. We've got various banks. We've even got Clear Blue, which are a pregnancy test company. So you can tap on those. So for example, the Microsoft Disability Answer Desk, if you need some serious tech support with a pair of eyes and expertise behind it who have got literally all the time in the world for you. Well, no, not literally, but you know, they, they, they're not, you're not catching them in the, the two minutes that they've got for you, um, to help you out. They could be on that call, that video call with you for 45 minutes, for four hours, whatever it might be wow. to get you through your tech problem. So that app is absolutely gold. Oh, it what, really what is. What app is that? That we're be still talking eyes. about be my eyes, yeah. Yeah. So wow. there's a whole bunch of specialist support um, wow, services that have really grown amazing. in the last probably 18 months in okay. that app. So yeah, something as simple as that. I mean, that's not on the you know that's not rocket science. Just you, it's just video calling with um, you know crowdsourced help, but it, that's absolutely life saving. And um, having a guide dog, for example. So when I was losing my vision. I first had a white cane before I qualified with my first guide dog. So for 18 months, I was using a long cane. And it was an odd experience because you're sweeping this thing in front of you looking for obstacles. Um, I was down in Torquay, which is on what they call the English Riviera, the British Riviera. It's got palm trees of a sort on the south coast of England. Um, it is a lovely place to live, but the pavements were all over the place. And every three yards, you'd get it snagged in something and you'd get an extra belly button poked into your stomach <laughs> as this thing. And the number of times they would buckle under the, the you know, because you, unless you're walking forward at three inches a, a minute, then, you know, there's going to be a lot of momentum behind that belly button squish. So, um, and people would 
probably by definition give you a wide berth. And it, it wasn't a nice thing from a social point of view. And it just wasn't a nice experience. And then going over to a guide dog is the complete opposite. It's like night and day. So yeah. everybody wants to talk to you. You know, they're all coming up to you saying you're gorgeous. They're always talking about the dog, but that's fine. <laughs> and it's just such a positive social thing. So, you know, we mentioned earlier about how disability is probably the least sexy of the whole diversity, you know, um, festival. But, you know, having a service dog of any kind, I'm sure would have the same effect. And I just, having a guide dog is absolutely brilliant. So it's difficult to see how technology would ever replace that. But hmm. even then, when you're out and about, you know, the guide dog is weaving you effortlessly through all the obstacles that you would have encountered before. And you can, you know, switch off and relax. And I'd often actually be at work. Don't tell the guide dog um, trainers this, but I'd, I'd, I'd kind of reached work crossing several busy roads and things, obviously doing the right technique and listening out and stuff, but in a such a relaxed way that when I got to work, it's like, oh, am I here already? You know, Uh-oh. it was just so <laughs> By the way, that happens and, with driving too. So yeah. that's really <laughs> scary. It's like you were just hurtling down a, a road at 30, 40 miles an hour with a 3,000 pound vehicle and you don't remember how you got here. <laughs> Autopilot yeah, is just like an <laughs> absent moment. In um, your head, anyway. But it was that level of ease that a guide dog gives you. And yet the guide dog has limitations. So it will stop you walking into things. It will stop at curbs, etc. But if you're in a place where you're a bit turned around and you, you know, you don't know where you are, the, the GPS that can be meters out, depending on how many of the maximum seven satellites that you can see at any one time, you can see at that moment, you know, with trees and buildings and stuff, you know, it could misreport you. It, you, it could put you on the parallel street, for example, and that's not what you want when you can't see. Um, and all these other apps and technologies won't help you. Whereas, a remote pair of eyes using Beam AIs, there are other ones that do something similar, um, can instantly tell you, you know, can just describe what's around you, can see if there are any street signs, can... Well, some um, of the machine learning is starting to do that, right? Where you're supposed to be able to look down a street and wave your phone around, it'll say that's a Starbucks on your left and Neiman Marcus is across the street. Yeah, absolutely. And I do use those. Um there's one called Seeing AI, which is by Microsoft. Yes. Yeah, that, and, I haven't played with it lately, but I did a review of it as a sightling and, and found it really, really interesting. It is. So you can point your phone as you're walking past a parade of shops and it will grab any text, any brand logo, you know, if it'll tell you if it's Marks and Spencers or McDonald's or whatever it is, brilliantly. But can it uh, kind of advise you or guide you so that you can literally put your hand on the door handle? No. Mm. So that's okay. where a human would come in or the training with the dog. You can, um, once you've found the handle, you can really, really praise them and you can give them a treat. And so the next time they're much more likely to take you straight to that handle. So, yeah, I mean, I use tech every single day and there's another really good one from Microsoft called Soundscape, which if you combine it with the Bose AR frames, which have got a compass in them, you can actually turn your head and all the POIs, all the sort of spoken things that you're passing will pan around you in your head. So there are some brilliant technologies out there that absolutely will help. But having that dog with the intelligence of, of the dog to just weave you through things, I can't see that being replaced by haptics or, um, you know, AI driven uh, spoken commands or whatever anytime soon, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the time when it might respond. You respond to the dog as well. If that dog stops, you're not going to override him, right? No, you're thinking he probably knows at what might know right now, right? Yeah, because you could be stopped at a, a pavement that you know for a fact will goes on for another two hundred yards, and he won't budge. And hmm. you know, if you override him, you're down that manhole or that <laughs> roadworks because. I don't know about in the States, but over here, if there are barriers around roadworks, then that's a bit of a novelty. And even when there are barriers, sometimes they get blown over or oh, wow. you know, moved or I don't know what. So you would ignore the dog's advice at your peril, definitely. So, um, yeah, but the, the tech's definitely getting there. And I'm definitely looking forward to a time when um, talking about apps. So Clue, which is spelled K-L-E-W, don't know why they chose that name, but 
this is a brilliant app that uses iOS's AR kit. And as soon as AR kit came out in iOS 12 and the measure app, which um, was an example of how AR kit can now estimate lengths very accurately, parallel, you know, vertical and horizontal planes and things. They developed this app, which if you point your camera ahead of you and you walk a particular route, then it grabs all the objects, all the vertical surfaces, all the edges, all the corners as it's going along as much as it can. And however complicated that route is, if you then save that route, you can then walk that route forwards and backwards as many times as you like, holding your phone out in front of you. I'd much prefer to have glasses on my head that had the camera on them rather than holding my phone out. So Apple, hurry up. Um, and you, it will guide you with spoken commands centimeter perfect. Oh, wow. So it will weave you through chairs. And if those chairs are still in the same place next time, or, you know, obviously not people, it ignores people because they're soft and squidgy. Um, but yeah, ARKit is doing a lot of clever stuff there. And is it meant for that application? No, it's meant for AR so that people can have, you know, arrows pointing at subways or um, some sort of, you know, cool information for sighted people. But it absolutely is really useful. For, I, I, can I ask you to spell that again? Because I'm looking for it and I'm not finding it. K-L-E-W? Yeah. So it's by a university here in the UK. There's only one app in the app in the uh, app store and it's Clue Do's. Yeah. So I suspect then it's only in the UK oh. app store because it's a UK, it's Sussex University here in the UK. Oh, okay. um, so they've obviously not kind of commercialized it yet. I was okay. involved in the you know, trialing of that. And, um, it's, it's MVP at the moment. It's a minimum viable product, but I'm hoping that they will, um, make that available. So yeah, that okay. things like that. But I mean, there are so many of these and that's part of what AbilityNet's all about, which is just keeping up to speed with all these different things that are happening across all the, you know, disabilities and how technology can, um, make their lives, you know, better and more fulfilling and hopefully level the playing field so that they can, you know, have all the choices and options that other people have. But um, it's a moving, the, the goalposts are moving very rapidly because there's just so much going on. But yeah, it's really nice. It's like being paid to play. It's really nice. <laughs> well, yeah, you uh, you mentioned that in uh, when we were chatting earlier about your job. Talk about how it is like being paid to play. Is this what you do is you get to just try everything? Um, yeah, I mean, part of my job is to try and keep up to speed on these sort of things. My role is, um, a little bit removed from that kind of thing. We've got several teams at AbilityNet. We've got a team that delivers consultancy for accessibility of websites and apps and general kind of, um, consultants, well, the accessibility maturity within organizations, because we always used to work with organizations on a particular project, website or whatever. And then we'd come X weeks or months later and working on a different project and there'd be no knowledge transfer or kind of learning takeaways from it. And so we much prefer to work with organizations to try and um, embed better practice within those organizations. So that's one area of what we do. And the other area is working with assistive technologies and with the actual disabled uh, users of those technologies to make sure that they've got the right solutions in place. So I kind of sit a Above that in as much as um, I do a lot of public speaking, a lot of advocacy, a lot of complaining about the government not <laughs> enforcing the law. And um, yeah, I've been very vocal over more recent years about why it's so important for um, there to be some enforcement, there to be some teeth in the legislation. And I think I've um, made a, a small name for myself in in um, advocating for that. So I'm slightly more removed these days from the tech, although I still very much revel in it and, you know, have an RSS, uh, I have an RSS reader that has so many subscribed URLs that, you know, I'm, every time I open it, there's another 128 uh, articles to read. So <laughs> I'm trying my best. Um, well, but it's a power of two at least. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, You're but yeah. Name. It's it's really strange that the government here in the UK and um, elsewhere in the world that have the legislation don't consider it their job to enforce it in this particular area. So 
you know, there's a massive um, army of traffic wardens across the UK and I'm sure across the States and elsewhere. If you leave your car on a parking meter a millisecond over its time, then you'll get a ticket. You know, that's a given. Um, tax inspectors, you know, there's a massive army of those. You know, there's only three things that are certain in this world, life, death and taxes or whatever. Um, why can't there be that? Well, why can't there be any enforcement at all? You know, if, if parking is seen to be something that's worth enforcing, then why not something which is going to help people who are, have so much to offer, have the opportunities that everybody else has? So, Can yeah, I make you be... really depressed on the answer? Mm -hmm. So the pretty much the first tier of enforcement in something like that would be financial penalties, right? That's not in the, the UK. What would... Only if it's a civil claim, only if it's something that an individual, a disabled individual, takes a company to court, or in the case of um, a disability organisation like the RNIB, they might do a class action with a group of okay. um, complainants. But yeah, so then they might get sued. They might get. Um, but I mean, but I mean, financial... what would the first, what would the lowest level of enforcement look like in your view? So, in the UK, and this is really awful. If you take a company to court, there was a recent case where a lady um, took a, an airline company to court because of their website. She won the court case. The damages she was uh, awarded were £32,000. It's about $50,000 or so. But her legal fees were 33000 mm. And there's a law, there's a rule in the UK that if your legal fees exceed the award, you're liable to pay them all. <laughs> So she was actually out of pocket. So there is no appetite here in the UK well, so, for taking companies to court. Right. Well, so, so what I was trying to ask, though, was uh, I was trying to say that's the lowest level of enforcement would be. It, it, and you said, no, it wouldn't be. So what, what are you saying would be the lowest level of enforcement that you would look for? Well, not financial penalty. Yeah. So. What we would be calling for is um, for the government. I mean, there are loads of precedents here. So Norway, which is a very close neighbour of ours to the north, is proactively, you know, auditing websites and fining. So the um, DIFI, which are the uh, is the government department that does this in in Norway, they um, audit websites. They give them a year to sort it out, and then they impose fines and their national airline, airline again, SAS, um, pushed back and they said, we can't do it. It's going to be too expensive. The year ran out. The um, government started to fine them 15,000 euros a day, <laughs> which if they'd have let it go on for, say, three months would have been half a million. Mm -hmm. um, Did they find they the money all of a sudden? They fixed it in 10 days. Wow. So well, that, they were... that, that's good to hear because I was going to give you a depressing answer, which and it's I was trying to drive you towards exactly what you just described. But my understanding of watching companies that face fines for, um, say, losing our data, you know, accidentally giving away all of our, our usernames and passwords and social security numbers and everything. They look at it as a cost of doing business. Yeah, like, oh, they, it would it take a writer. Would yeah. it cost a lot to protect against that? But I mean, so you know, it's half a million dollars. Whatever, sure. Here's a check. <laughs> you know, and that didn't it didn't solve anything. But I'm glad to see that in a case like that, that actually it it did work. That's that's good. Yeah, I think that the scale of the the fines is the important thing. It has to hurt. So half a million for a company of you know billion or trillion dollar value valuation would be nothing like you say mm -hmm. but um yeah for, for average normal co companies that's the sort of scale of fine that would actually make them do something about it now obviously we would want everyone to do it because it's the right thing to do you know it's obviously the the right decent thing to do but um and you know the, the products that you create from having a diverse workforce that do things in a more inclusive way are much more compelling they're much easier to use for everyone particularly in this mobile first world. So, you know, traffic to any given website is well over 50% from mobile now. It's sometimes nearer 60% on a daily basis. So this is a mobile first age that we're living in. And mobile is extreme computing, not just people with disabilities. Everyone is computing on the edge when it comes to mobile phones. Mm -hmm. It's a bright, sunny day, short, small piece of shiny glass. It's a bumpy bus ride it's a noisy cafe um 
you know, you're very time constrained. You need to do something in the last 90 seconds of your coffee break. You have to book that flight or whatever it is. Um, you've had a really good night out and you're needing to order an Uber to get home and you've had a few glasses of whatever. Mm -hmm. So all of these extreme use cases apply to everyone and all of them are addressed by the accessibility guidelines that for people who are visually impaired 24 seven, not just from shiny, you know, sunny day on a shiny bit of glass or who are 24 seven motor impaired, not just by a bumpy bus or, you know, and I could go on and on. So mm -hmm. there are kind of parallel use cases, which mean that if people don't create uh, apps or websites that are done in an inclusive way that are compliant to the guidelines, they're not even going to be fit for purpose in this mobile first world. So we would love it to be, you know, table stakes yeah. for a company to yeah. think, okay, this is, this is the right thing to do. It's going to make it better for everyone. It's going to make us, um, it's going to minimize, you know, mitigate risk of, of getting fined. It'd be mm -hmm. nice if that was a big risk, but anyway, <laughs> and brand damage. I mean, Domino's, I don't know if you heard about that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So they obviously don't care about brand damage, but many companies do. So, um, yeah, there's so many reasons Basically, why it's for the right anybody thing to doesn't do. know about uh, what happened uh, with Domino's was they were they were sued because their website wasn't uh, accessible and they said, well, it doesn't have to be. And the argument was, well, yeah, the law says that uh, uh, you know anything with public access has to be accessible. And they said, no, it's not a physical place, so it doesn't count. And they got sued and they lost. So that was yeah, and they victory. then appealed they took it to the supreme court like their brand hadn't been damaged enough and this was a matter of principle that they we will not cater for it was about um a blind chap who wanted to customize the toppings on his pizza that was the bit of the app that wasn't accessible and on the website too so yeah if you're blind you can't you've got to go for the standard offerings you can't you can't uh, <laughs> pick a mix so um yeah they took it all the way and they got kicked out of the supreme court so um yeah, that's not good, and that's that's not a good look. So, now, do you do it for uh, the right does reasons? Your, does AbilityNet do any work with um, the universities there to try to get them to emphasize accessibility in their software development programs? That's a really good question. We have been trying to, and you know, not just us, but other organizations as well. But you take the average, you know, web design developer course, computer science and all that sort of thing, and it barely features, which is a real shame. Interestingly enough, talking about legislation, the one last EU um, law that, that came into Britain, because normally when you're part of, when we've been part of Europe for the last four decades, all the EU legislation would automatically be enshrined in UK law as well. That's just how it works in all the 27 nations, uh, states. Um, and this was on public sector regulations. And there was a one coming up behind it, which would have dealt with private sector, i.e. other sectors that weren't public sector. And that would have just, they were like a, a matching pair. But Brexit kind of came down as a guillotine in between. Uh. And so the other one isn't going to be. But the public sector one, which has been in force for a year now, has had a massive impact because for the very first time, there's a named government body that's going to audit and enforce. So I was talking before, but I hadn't actually kind of given you the whole picture, but that's because the government body over here that's actually going to be doing in the enforcement hasn't actually geared itself up to start doing that yet, but it will be doing soon. But the amount of interest and... Um, Activity in the public sector, which includes all the universities, uh, all the, you know, like the BBC and everything, all the local and central government, the activity has just been absolutely massive because this is the first time that the law has got some potential to really kind of be uh, enforced and have some teeth. And hopefully those university governments, uh, those university um, departments that are having to deal with this, um, you know, making sure that their websites are accessible as well, will look at the syllabi that they're delivering to their students and think, oh, actually, there's a big hole here as well. So, yeah, let's hope so. Yeah. Well, that's that's good. I'm glad to see you're, you're moving in that direction. I think that I, I like the idea of getting at root cause because, you know, you can beat the uh, companies on the back end after they make a website that stinks or mm -hmm. you can teach you know the the developers up front that this is just how you do it 
you know, you, you wouldn't build this database without thinking about security. Why would you build this UI without thinking about accessibility? Of course you would. I mean, that's... And retrofitting is so much more expensive oh, and often yeah. can't be done because of the choices that you've made earlier in the process. So yeah, absolutely. One of the I reckon things, it's too... One of the things I really like about the way Bart is teaching us in programming by stealth is he's putting in all the ARIA controls for, for accessibility yeah. as we go. And it's just like, well, of course you would label that. Why would you not label that? Of course, that's what you do next. You know, it's just, it, it's made natural by the way he's teaching us. And, and, and I really appreciate that. You know, every time you guys mention accessibility and you do things in a certain way, you've got no idea how special that is. You know, that, that isn't just a passing thing. Well, obviously it is for, for most people probably, <laughs> but for people for whom that counts, that's huge. Oh, and that's why, yeah, and let's absolutely. Let's hope it stops being special. <laughs> yeah, let's hope so. And Apple have done that. You know, in iOS 13, they've pulled the accessibility options Apple up level. out of under general. Yeah, absolutely. So it's something that everyone spots. Um, that mind map that you created. Oh, of the I was going to bring that settings. up. Yeah. yeah. Um, accessibility is a massive area that people should explore. They should mine it because we are not all you know, cookie cutter copies of each other. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't in a way be called accessibility because that's got too much baggage. That's traditionally been the thing that is for people who have got a disability or impairment, you know, call it personalization, whatever you want to call it, let people encourage and invite them in. Personalization. That's a great way to look like tweak everything in here. Yeah. Yeah, they call he, it the playground, to, the settings playground, or something, you know. Yeah. yeah. What he's referring to, if you haven't heard about it, is back on iOS 11, I mind map every mind mapped every single setting in iOS 11. It, it took me like three weeks. It was it was a really stupid thing to do, but I didn't realize <laughs> it would be as hard as it was until I went through it. And by far, the biggest section in iOS is accessibility. It is massive. It is, it's more than a third of the, of the total thing. It's just crazy. And I tell you, since iOS 13, which I know hasn't been universally well accepted, um, received by everyone, that accessibility mind map section would have doubled in size. Really? Absolutely. It was a monumental leap, iOS 13. For accessibility I hope they settings. did a better job of laying it out because it's it's too flat, you know. And, they, and a lot of times they have menus that just point to other menus, like the menu pick that you don't get anything at that step. You have to click again. So that was part of my annoyance with it. But uh, <laughs> anyway, hey, I should uh, I got to cut us off here. I feel like we could talk absolutely forever, and this was as fun as I hoped it would be. But um, let's let you plug your your podcast. Talk a bit about uh, about your shows. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So um, the dot to dot podcast, which you kindly mentioned earlier, that's a daily one. And it's a different skill demoed live or a bit of built in functionality of the different echo family every single day. And it's between two and five minutes. And you could add it to your flash briefing if you want to, because there's a skill version of it as well. So if you want to have a listen to that one, then just search for dot to dot normal spelling, three words in your podcatcher of, of choice. And if you want to access it as part of your daily flash briefing on the Echo, then just ask the A-Lady to enable the daily five minutes skill demo show. And she'll add that to your flash briefing. And the other one that I probably, well, there's two more very quickly, Maxessibility, which is accessibility with an M, is all things um, vision impairment and Apple related and that's fortnightly and that you know just search for that word and the other one is tech talk which is something we do with the rnib and ability net can uh jointly and that's all things tech every week with a vi twist vi oh okay that's visual vision impairment, impairment. okay sorry <laughs> <laughs> all these acronyms so rnib was the uh royal national institute yep. of the blind something like love that. love it yep all right. Well, this has been so much fun. What if people wanted to follow you specifically? Do you Are you of the Twitter persuasion or what's the best way to keep up with you? Yeah. And you're going to wonder why I have this um, Twitter name, but it's USA Two Day. And that's the number two in the middle. And that's because I think it was 2008. I was speaking at a conference in in California and I wangled a three week family holiday at the same time. And we went to Disneyland and everything. And I, Twitter was like a new thing. And so I thought, Hey, I'll use this Twitter thing to keep people informed about what we're doing each day. 
over back in this side of the pond. So I gave myself that Twitter handle USA Today <laughs> and I've had to explain it ever since and I'm not in any way American. So, yeah. I love it. I love it. I, I was so happy when AOL went away because my AIM name was so stupid that I had to explain it every single time. And it wasn't even interesting. At least your story is kind of interesting. Mine was not. It was just stupid. It was It was just I got angry that I couldn't get a, a good name. And so I just kept typing stuff in until I got something really stupid. So I was I was very happy when that when that went away. I'm sad, though, because there's a, a Robin on Twitter. That is the handle. He's tweeted three times and not for the last seven years or something. And his name is simply Robin? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Well, I'll actually, have that having that kind of name, you end up getting all kinds of other people's contents yeah. splatted at you, so it's better to... Yeah. But that probably isn't the best identifying name, but you have a lot of followers, so you don't want to mess with it now. <laughs> All right, well, Robin, this has been fantastic. I am so glad you invited yourself on the show. Thanks great. for buckling and letting me on. <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you again soon. Brilliant, thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Did you notice there weren't any ads in the show? That's because this show is not ad-supported. It's supported by you. If you learned something, or maybe you were just entertained, consider contributing to the Podfeet podcast. You can do that by going over to podfeet.com and look for the big red button that says support the show. When you click that button, you're going to find different ways to contribute. If you like to do a one-time donation, you can click the PayPal button. If you want to make a recurring contribution, click the weekly Patreon button. Or another way to contribute is to record a listener contribution. It's a great way to help the NoSilla Castaways learn from you. If you want to contact me for any reason, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Maybe you want to talk to other NoSilla castaways. There's two great places to do that. You can do that in our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack, or you can join our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.